calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. everybody, welcome to Bitches on Comics. I am your host, Sarah Century, and there is another host to this podcast, and I believe that they're here now. Well, well hello, I just walked in. Let me take my coat off. Hi. Can you hear my clothes? I can. Oh, hi, this is Essie Fleenor. I was here the whole time. Isn't that funny how audio works? <laughs> you couldn't tell. <laughs> I am so excited. Today, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, we are here with some of the coolest people on the planet. And I'm sorry if you thought I was going to say your name next, because <laughs> I'm not. I'm going to actually say, I'm so happy to welcome back to the show, Tina Horn. Tina, how you doing? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm great. I'm great. It's an honor just to be nominated as one of the coolest <laughs> people in the world. So to actually receive this honor i'm told that there will be a stipend um, yes. so you can i'll invoice you Perfect. and i am so happy to be <laughs> back with the bitches <laughs> and i am not the only guest why i believe that there's another guest here who is the co-author of the new book Safe Sex Terms of Service, and their name is G. Romero Johnson. Hey, y'all. What's up? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, I'm G. It's a requirement that you say, hey, bitches. Hey, bitches. <laughs> What's up? Ooh, That's yes. I don't know what that voice was. <laughs> Ooh, uh, <laughs> That's the pizzazz I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah. That's definitely what I bring to the table. <laughs> pizzazz! <laughs> Oh, who wrote into us that was like, hey, lovely bitches? <laughs> I don't remember, but then I said it on one episode, and now every single email is, hey, lovely bitches. <laughs> no, I'm lovely and bitches. I'm like, you bitches, you've been listening. Uh, I'll allow it. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. Well, okay, so before we jump in, oh, my gosh, we have so much to talk about today. I would love it if I could, like, convince you, Tina and G, to give us, like, what's the mission statement of Tina Horn? <laughs> That's how I'm going to ask. I it am a mission. You know, it's 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 cool that you say that because Tina Horn isn't 
really a person. Tina Horton is more of a mission than a person. And the mission is to entertain the world with as many different things to do with butts as possible and maybe make the world a better place through butt-related entertainment. You know what? I'm going to make that be my mission too. Can like, could we share a mission? Our missions and butts <laughs> can be aligned. <laughs> you know, we got to get our, we got to get the butts like in formation, you know, we got to get the like choreography down. But I think, I don't think it's going to be an issue. I think it's going to come very naturally. But synchronization uh-huh. into it. Well, and Tina, I, I think butts are very germane to your partnership with G because <laughs> I believe you were shown a slideshow of people who draw good <laughs> butts and boobs. This is, and that's I'm how so, you met G? I'm so glad that this fact is now becoming part of the safe sex canon because it is true. Do you want to tell that story, G? I, I, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, Joan Dark. Perfect, beautiful Joan. <laughs> Scouted me. Is that the right word? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Headhunted you. Butt hunted you, I guess. Yeah. And they had a, a a beautiful list that they compiled for Tina of possible folks that could maybe draw this book. And it was people who draw good boobs and butts. And I was on there. And what an honor that was. Uh, I'm not going to top that for a long time. I, I hope, I sure hope I do. I mean, you kind of topped it by drawing a lot of really good boobs and butts for the new graphic novel, Safe Sex Terms of Service, available now wherever fine books and comic books are sold or taken out from your library. Yeah, I sure did. <laughs> so organic. Thank you for uh, nominating the the library, too, because, oh my God, that's one where we're always just like, and the library, and some creators like look at us like... Yeah, I guess, and also the library. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, the thing is, is that, okay, as a comics creator, so I'm the writer of Safe Sex, and I am also the creator of the intellectual property, and I'm also a member. So I've learned, and, and publishing through Image, you know, a lot of Bitches on Comics listeners are probably familiar with the Image Comics sort of um, system publishing model where you know, there are lots of different ways that creators come up with the funding to make the book. But in general, Image does not fund the production of the book in the way that other publishing companies, both in comics and in other parts of the publishing industry, do. So like G and I did not get contracts from Image Comics and then like, you know, deadlines and paychecks from Image Comics to make this book. Um, we put together the money ourselves and Partially, we did that through running a Kickstarter and obviously like the royalties and the revenue from the book, you know, at this point, just go back into making the book. So it's really very much like running a small business. How does all of this connect to libraries, you ask? Well, it connects to libraries because I think a lot of people rightfully so want to support independent creators and have heard us banging the drums about like if you want it like please support us by buying books directly from us or like all of the ways that we tell you to um but actually safe sex 
being out there in the direct market and the general ecosystem of comics and graphic novels and and books and also just like because of the nature of safe sex also like sexuality culture and queer culture and politics and and feminist politics like it being out there in all these different ways benefits us both in terms of the financial stability of the book but also just like our mission it all comes back to the mission which is changing hearts and minds and brainwashing the culture into being as horny and demented as we are so you can do that through going to your library like if you go to your if you go to your library and say i'm interested in this graphic novel you may not know this but there are a lot of people out there who are trying to keep all queer representation out of libraries so mm-hmm. that queer people of all ages cannot discover education and stories and aesthetics and imagery and community and culture through their local library which i would argue is a human right and certainly like benefits society. So um, taking out safe sex from your local library and also like letting them know that you're interested in this books and other books made by marginalized creators actually does benefit us. But also (laughs) if you want to send us money, we could use that. Yeah. Money. Money is useful. G, I don't know. Did we get the G mission statement? What's the G mission statement? I was thinking about this a lot because I've been having to, you know, write some stuff for articles or or just talk about it a lot. A lot of my work for many years has at the core of it been about sex. And, you know, I love erotica. Everyone knows that about me. Erotica is something that I hold very dear that I think a lot of people (laughs) want to take away from everyone. Uh, Sex in general is just, I mean... There's so much that I could say about the puritanical nature of our world right now. Crackdowns on actual terms of service that are sending creators running and with nowhere to go. And that's something I'm thinking a lot about because me, myself, you know, the work I'm making has to do specifically with queer and trans people and and the sex they have. And there's not a lot of space for that, but I'm trying to carve out a space, (laughs) I guess, for myself and and. And my peers that are making the same work. Yeah. I have never asked uh, guests for their mission statement before, but damn, y'all have set a precedent. Those are some impressive (laughs) mission statements. I am like, what am I doing with my life? (laughs) Like, I am not sure. So, What's the mission of Bitches on Comics? (sighs) To be bitches and read comics. (laughs) Why did only the word gay go through my head? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, we have a whole different (laughs) behind-the-scenes mission. (laughs) (laughs) isn't it just interviewing people who are doing what you all just said our whole thing at bitches on comics is like comics get really bad if you don't push them to be great right so i think like it's kind of just the same thing where you have to constantly be pushing people to like do more and do better but also supporting the people who are doing great work because that's another thing that we talk about a lot where it's like corporatization of pride and stuff like that so we're always like well why don't we just talk to the people who are like doing good independent work or like good work even if it's not independent but something that we feel like is pushing people in a way yeah and I think you know building on that part of what Sarah and I talk about a lot is the and in I mean (laughs) so does safe sex the destruction of like our queer and trans histories 
and feminist histories. You know, we, I think the bulk of our guests are queer and trans, but we also talk to people who are women about, you know, their work in comics too. So we're not, it's not a super strict line there because all binaries are false. So, you know, I think that getting to talk to Rachel Pollock, for instance, and talk about Doom Patrol and talk about her experience of creating a, a trans character in the DC universe and a trans woman who was pissed off and not going to be nice and identified as a lesbian, like, that's pretty fucking cool. So creating an archive of queer and trans and feminist creators of all kinds, so huge markets, small markets, people who, what they're doing is like, maybe not really comics, but it's like connected or we just decide, fuck it, like it seems like a cool thing to talk about, so let's do it. Yeah, it's pretty special. I think there's a mission somewhere in there. I just haven't figured out exactly what it is. Preserve, share, fight the powers that be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the archiving is important because, I mean, I, as a listener, like I said, I'm not just a guest. I'm also a listener. <laughs> and, you know, I discover things through your show all the time. Or sometimes I'm, like, familiar with something. But then it really, like, winds itself around my cerebral cortex and squeezes a little bit more after I've listened to an episode of your show where you talk about it or you have the creators on to talk about it. So, yeah. Shit, what a compliment. I'm going to go <laughs> cry for a week. Um, wow. Okay, well, we haven't even, like, I love that we've had, like, these deep philosophical conversations without even getting into, like, the interview. So, you know, I wanted to start with talking about the collection as a work. So sort of zoom out a little bit. Something that I, I love about Safe Sex Volume 1 and all the issues as well, and then again, Safe Sex Volume 2, is that there are always these sort of eclectic collections, right? Like they're comics, but there's also playlists and there's also interviews and introductions and photos and collage work and all these pieces that really give it like that archival juiciness where it's capturing so much at once. And I'm curious, was, was there a different way you approached that experience for volume two? And, you know, why do you think that multimedia aspect of it is so important as well? Well, I think that the big difference between volume one and volume two is that volume one was originally released in floppy issue serialized form. And so there was more space for back matter, as we call it in the biz. The people who listen to the show know what back matter is. And I mean, I grew up on zine culture, but then I also have worked in magazines a lot. And I, I think I just, I like picking up something and having sort of a feature story and then also some nonfiction and then also some taste making and, uh, you know, some insight into process. And I don't know, I guess it's kind of like when you used to go to the movies and you would watch like five shorts and an educational reel and a newsreel before you watched the feature presentation. You know, I like want it to be the whole experience and a bag of buttery hot popcorn. So <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. You're right. Like it does have that feel of like a feature and then sort of like shorter pieces that reinforce the themes of that or, or what have you. I, that's really cool. In that vein, I saw that you had one of our favorites here at Bitches on Comics, the lovely B-Shock Soam, who we talked oh. to for episode 93. 
I, I saw that she wrote the introduction. Like, mm-hmm. how did that happen? And how fucking cool was that introduction? Oh, man. I mean, Bishak blows me away. And yeah, I mean, I think that in making volume two a graphic novel, which, by the way, was just purely a financial decision, like it just made more sense to consolidate it. I definitely hope that straight to graphic novel doesn't come across the same as like straight to video movies did in the 90s. Although like some straight to video movies were like erotic thrillers. So maybe Mm -hmm. we do fit into that category. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I mean, I think that we wanted to make sure that we made room for behind the scenes process stuff and, you know, more than just the story and the feature presentation and also have an intro. I mean, I think that like, to be honest, I can't imagine putting out a book any other way because there's so many different comics that I grew up on my ride or die comics that sort of like formed my twisted brain for better or worse were Vertigo comics in the 90s. And, you know, I discovered who Clive Barker was because he wrote an intro to a Sandman collection, you know, and I don't know, it's also just kind of like a long form blurb. So the process of like asking someone to write an intro is like, I'm going to pay you to say something flattering about this (laughs) thing that we all just like collaborated on working really hard on. And um, I said hard on, that's right. And (laughs) and yeah, so like Morgan M. Page, who was my roommate at the Lambda Literary Fellowship and is an amazing trans historian and radio maker and filmmaker, wrote the intro for the first one. And then when it came to, uh, to asking somebody to write an intro for volume two terms of service you know we had just been nominated for uh lammy which is like a queer literary award for volume one and one of the people that we were nominated with was bishak so Upsara engine and spellbound two books by bishak some were nominated with safe sex for a lammy this year and i had seen bishak speak at the queers and comics conference in New York that Justin Hall and Jennifer Camper and some other folks put together a couple of years ago and had been following her for a while and was really impressed with her work. But then I just like went right out and bought both of her books when we were nominated alongside them because I was like, okay, I like got to check these out. And Upsara Engine melted my face. I couldn't believe how amazing that book was. It's beautiful to be like, you know, sometimes you get things recommended to you and you're like, this is great. And sometimes you get things recommended to you and you're like, what would have happened to me if I hadn't read this book? I don't want to know. Like, I don't, please close off all parts of the multiverse where I didn't read this book. You know what I mean? So that book is amazing. And so I, we had gotten in touch when we were like co-nominees. And so I was like, well, you're obvious. And she won, by the way, which I mean, I'm like a bit egotistical and feel like, If someone wants to give me an award, I'm like, I deserve this. It's like pretty easy for me to get there. But also it's really cool feeling when you like read your like fellow nominees work and you're like, no, this should win. Like it would be, I will start an upset if I win because this is <laughs> this is a this is a work of literature like on an, another level from from what we've done and like truly an honor to be considered alongside it. So anyway, I 
then asked her and she was happy to do it. And the last thing that I'll say about Bashak for a moment is that, you know, Bashak is both a writer and a visual artist. And so it's really nice to ask people for blurbs and to like write intros and doing reviews and that kind of thing when they themselves are visual artists. Because I think that sometimes people get a little stuck in the idea of like the writer as author. And I I try to complicate that as, as much as possible, even though I'm not a visual artist and you will never see like written and drawn by Tina Horn um, in your life if you're lucky. Um, but uh, it was nice to have Bishak write it and have it not only be about like the themes and the politics and the characters and the stories, but also the visual style. And she had so many specific things to say about G and also we should say Kelly Fitzpatrick who did the colors and Steve Wands did the letters and Lauren McCoven is our trusty editor and designer who does those, those collage designs that you were talking about and also just like shepherds so much about this book. So yeah, anyway, and then Bishak also drew these beautiful pictures of some of our main characters and just like seeing our characters drawn by someone so incredible. I mean, that's kind of what it's like for all of the artists that I get to work with. It's like I come up with a person and then people whose style I admire draw them. I'm like, it's alive. That's all amazing. And I was just now thinking about how great our interview was and how good Apsara Engine is. That is such an incredible book. Just incredible. It's one of my very favorites that I've read in a long time. But I was going to ask a couple of things about the comic Save Sex, which is that, first of all, the environment is really different here, right? It's different without being different. Things kind of change, right? The background is a little bit more nebulous. We're in a different zone pretty much immediately. And I was wondering, was that something that was an intentional move for you? Because both of these start in these moments where you're just like, A, they're very sexual in a great way, and it like sets the tone for the whole book. But it also does the work of being kind of, you don't see it very much in comics, right? Like you don't, we talked last time where we were like, we don't see group sex in comics ever unless it's straight up somebody being like, this is a comic where that happens, right? Like it's definitely kind of a different world here because I feel like this one focuses a lot on the emotions and the feelings and like where this person is at when we start the story. So I was wondering, was that an intentional thing? Like, did you think about, oh, I kind of want to go into a different realm while kind of keeping all of the same themes intact? Well, I definitely want to send this over to G, but in terms of starting off the book in a very sexual place, I think that the way to sort of enter into talking about that is to talk about the fact that like as a sequel we're starting from a place of our characters being in a worse situation than they were at the beginning of the first volume, which is like just kind of how you have to do serialized storytelling, right? You kind of like up the stakes and uh, just be more sadistic with these beautiful people that you've created. And so because a lot of the situations that the characters are in are very dystopian and sterile and stark or even like in hiding very like enclosed and because it's a cyber thriller a techno thriller leaning into a lot of the like sci-fi action and possibilities of this world I think that right from the beginning we wanted to signal that the literal environment of the story is just a portal 
for a lot of different abstract spaces. And so in the beginning, you get a kind of portal into the inner life of Avery, our main character. And then later on, you get this sort of like synthetic technological portal into a lot of different abstract spaces. So, but I'd love to now like pass that hot potato over to G to talk about like what it is like to create those abstract spaces like within an environment that's like really contrasted with that. Yeah, well, so (laughs) I'm flipping through the book right now and being like, what what did I do here? Um, But, you know, the first page is Avery incarcerated in a place that I'm pretty used to be her home way back when and is now the place that she is imprisoned. Because this book, so much of it is going from fantasy to grime to fantasy dream and then to dreams that are like almost intrusive thoughts. I really needed to nail the difference between kind of the grimy real life where, you know, in the actual dirty mind, it's pretty damn grimy too, but there is warmth and and there's community even when they are kind of in a dilapidated place. There's a lot of abstract spaces, like, you know, wet spaces, literally just ooey-gooey, flesh, swimming around, sex personified as a, a person, place, and thing, you know? But yeah, there. this book is a lot more... I mean, I, I don't think in the first one they're in these abstract spaces at all. I don't think. I read it like two days ago. Um, but yeah... <laughs> <laughs> this just gets I, I love a good abstract psychedelic dream sequence uh, slash masturbation session so I really tried <laughs> to put that into this book constantly yeah I was thinking about how it's centralized on the people in their experience in a way and it's like the first one was very much as well but there was that sense of community that you got throughout a lot of it here people are more in their heads a little bit and so I was thinking about that a lot while I was reading it and just being like, the look of this is so different, but I think it works perfectly. And it's something that really helps to set the first book and the second book apart for me, both as being like obviously similar themes, but like something that is exploring it in a different way. And yeah, I was just kind of thinking about that while I was looking through and looking at the background, looking at the scenery and being kind of like, yeah, I wonder how much that was intentional, I guess. I'm not even sure, this is such a cool conversation that I'm stoked to be having. I'm not even (laughs) sure if it was intentional, but I think it was definitely something that we were embracing. I think that with the first book, I was learning a lot about just the mechanics of writing genre fiction. And we were working with a lot of different artists and you know the story at this point is well told about um the sort of like business constraints of what we were working with when we were making the the first volume and so i think that because we were firmly in the image comics milieu going into the second book and also thinking about making a cohesive graphic novel I think that I just really wanted to be like, yeah, all bets are off in terms of in terms of like being experimental with the form. I don't know. I'm a pomo homo. I'm like very amused by things being twisted and weird. And I have to like often rein myself in in terms of making sure things are 
coherence. <laughs> um, and so... I really appreciated that. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I think that also as soon as G came on board and I could see that they were somebody who had not only the willingness, but the ability to like take a simple prompt like, oh, can you make this reveal scene of Stacy tease, tease. Um, uh, you know, we want to make this like a burlesque scene. And then she was like, great, well, I'm just going to draw these like incredible classic burlesque feathers. And like, it's actually like so relaxing for me as a writer to not have to be like, in order to give this a burlesque feel, what we need is feathers. Like G just goes there and has that inventiveness. And it was a delight. I mean, that's the thing about collaborating on comics as a writer is that you kind of get to be a reader as you go along. Like every step of the way, you have that sense of like discovery and awe and wonder and delight when you see the pages come to life. You know, that makes me think about, like you said, the the history of volume one was kind of a wild series of collaborations. And so it's very different to have a collaboration between, correct me if I'm wrong, the entire same creative team for the whole piece. Yes, it's graphic novel, not serialized the same way, even though it is serialized a different way. But <laughs> I'm just curious, what was that experience like? And then for you, G, I would love to hear about what it was like to collaborate with Tina. Because we've heard Tina talk a lot about collaborating with artists at different points. But I would love to hear, like, what was that experience like being told, you know, we need a burlesque feel here and whatnot? Well, actually... <sighs> You know, in, in some of my other stuff, which is, you know, cooking right now, I, I'm, you know, the whole team. And being able to have a writer throw some crazy stuff at me was, for, first off, like, fun in a way where I was like, oh, what's going to happen next? And, like, getting the script. I haven't experienced, you know, working with a writer before and being able to... I, I guess be the reader in that sense as well. Like just even looking through the the script and being like, oh, I, I I had so many ideas for like I can do this here, that there, and then you know having people say like, oh, that's a good idea, uh, or or you know react well to my inks and stuff. Like there's nothing like that being able to see a script and then work with it in a way that brings something that it just you know I feel proud of. It was incredible to work on this book and, and also to bring like, oh, well, can I do this weird thing? Because I watched the thing and I've been watching these horror movies. What if we put that in here and everyone let it fly? You know, it, it was just great. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. 
or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Yeah, I see a combination of so many influences whenever I read through this where I'm like, yeah, I can totally see the thing. Like, that makes sense (laughs) to me. It totally does. And then I can see, like, Tom of Finland, you know? I can see all of these different influences. So I don't know how many creators look at something and they're like, well, I made this because I watched this one thing or something like that. But yeah, what were some of the other influences that you were bringing into the book? Because the background is fairly sparse at times in the way that allows you to really focus in on these characters a lot. But it also gives you the background of where they're at and kind of what they're going through and allows them to work through things on this sort of what I would consider to be like a comparatively blank canvas. But there is still a lot going on in the background. Like when she's having, you know, there's like a masturbation fantasy, there still is always that concrete wall, right? You know, there. So I was wondering if that was something that you were thinking of whenever you were working on the book. Yeah, um, I I come from a manga background in my reading. So I, whenever I can have a sparse background, I go for it. It uh, saves <laughs> a lot of time. And But I, I, you know, a lot of the books I enjoyed reading growing up had a lot of an emphasis on, you know, character. Whether that be character acting. I mean, that that's kind of it for comics, character acting. And I guess that's kind of a inherent part of a lot of the work I make is just emphasis on character. Uh, I really try to push myself on backgrounds and 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 scenery because you know so much of this, especially the pleasure center, is kind of a character in its own right. To me, it at least it is because I you know I drew a lot of tiled floor and cracked concrete. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I. I don't know if anyone knows this. I just, I really like drawing grimy buildings. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so 
This is a this is a, a grimy building book. I just love it. I don't know what I was reading that had like cracked walls that I said, I'm drawing that for this book. I have no idea, but it was something. I think it clicks so well, though, because not only does it kind of put the emphasis on the characters, but I never really question where they're at either. It, it seems like if there was a lot going on, then it might be very distracting. But then there's enough going on that I'm always like, I, I see what's happening. Like we're in this environment, right? So it's like as much as they do get into their own minds, I think that it's important to bring them back to a place where they're like, and here's a wall that has like nothing on it, you know? Like, yep. I mean, I guess that yep. part of it is that the book takes place almost entirely. In, okay, so like the literal scenes that are happening are almost completely inside of two locations. And then there's a lot of the book that happens in either cyberspace which we call wet space in the book or in a flashback or someone's inner life or someone's masturbation reverie or or whatever and you know there's there's thematic reasons for things taking place inside because there are themes of incarceration and or being forced underground in order to stay safe and then there are you know g alluded to the fact that the pleasure center which is the sort of the main bad guy zone is there's got to be a better literary term for that but uh the, the 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 place where the like the sort of villain headquarters where a lot of the action is taking place and then there's the dirty mind which is in this edge of town sort of squatted old ruins of a bathhouse which is based on the actual ruins of a bathhouse called the Sutro Baths in in San Francisco. And the Pleasure Center has been colonized by the party who are the dystopian theocratic regime that are sort of the main big bads of, of the safe sex story. And it used to be the dirty mind. So like G alluded to the fact that like, even when the characters are in the villain headquarters, it's also a place that used to be their home and the the center of pleasure and creativity and community and all the things that the dirty mind now stands for. And the dirty mind has been driven further to the edge of town and, and further underground. And so I think that those themes of claustrophobia hopefully also encourage, or, or I, I shouldn't even say like the themes of claustrophobia, like the literal claustrophobia of the, the visuals and the setting of the book hopefully invoke the feelings of colonizing culture and gentrifying culture and literally gentrifying places in San Francisco and how that is connected to the government's attempt to control sexuality through technology and policing and surveillance and bureaucracy and all of the other things that safe sex critiques and satirizes. Right, because it's kind of been stripped at that point, right? Like there's a lot of stuff that just isn't there. I think a lot of us have probably lived in cities that have undergone at least some gentrification. In Denver, there was a time whenever the police just straight up like whitewashed a bunch of the buildings in the art district. And then the city paid for muralists of their choosing to come in <laughs> and do a bunch of buildings and stuff like that. Not to say that Denver isn't a beautiful city, but it's more like, here's these really cool different color triangles on the side of the wall. <laughs> Instead of, you know, something that was like, somebody was, 
was really kind of trying to preserve what the history of the art district was, right? Like people who were doing stuff to kind of connect it to a time and a history. Whereas now it's like, that's a cool character drawing or those are like cool, you know, literally multicolored triangles, but they're not really connected to anything anymore, right? It really does reflect things like that. And it's interesting to hear that you were both kind of thinking about that, even if it wasn't like the first thing on your mind. But then I think that something else that G is so good at and is so important to me is in the dirty mind in this book, you know, the new dirty mind that's in the the bathhouse squatting ruins zone by the ocean, G kind of portrays the way that graffiti and art of a space where a subculture is actually thriving just kind of pokes through like a weed you know so there's just like you get much more of a sense in those spaces of these spontaneous expressions of horniness and pleasure and art and history and even educational materials and there are so many little real life things hidden in there but also things of G's invention and I hope that that comes through not just as like a visual feast for people, but also that has real meaning. Because when you are in places that, and I totally agree with you, like I have lived in a lot of cities that I have watched be completely whitewashed um, in, in a lot of different ways. And, but then you see those cultures pushing back and it's really beautiful. Speaking of pushing back... Let's talk about the Stacys. So (laughs) I love them. I would like to marry all of them. Um, (laughs) They are incredible. Yeah, so the Stacys are these androids or gynoids or I don't know if there is a gender neutral version of that. I know I think a lot of people use Android as the gender neutral, but they are these buxom Bettys uh, who some characters describe as Dolly Parton looking Bitches, I think, is what someone says. Fuck sleeves, I think, or <laughs> masturbation sleeves. sleeves. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, no. Ah, and uh, there's five chapters, I think, in the in the book. So they evolve, let's say. They're an integral component of the story. So, G, let's start with you. I would love to know how you decided to draw them the way you did. How did you deal with the duplicatives of them? You know, you would have four of them in a panel sometimes. And how did you, you know, make them the same or different? And then obviously, Tina, I want to hear, you know, where where in your dirty, dirty mind did the Stacys come from? And what are some of the themes you're grappling with? All right. Yeah, let's take a look at the Stacy design. I think early on, Tina and Lauren, Lauren being our beautiful editor, had notes. I think like a testing to draw the book. Maybe I designed her. I I don't know if that's right. And so I I did a bunch of designs, but I think they gave me a couple like just quick prompts of like, (laughs) I don't remember, blonde, uh, big tits, big ass. And and I remember, (laughs) 
I drew Stacy thick, like a lot thicker than I think she is. And they were like, I don't think that they would design Stacy to, I, I think you made her thicker. I don't know. Tina, you, you might need oh, to talk well, about that. I, I just, first of all, I, I like, I just want to interject and say that the thickness, <laughs> Jesus heard me rant about this uh, and will continue to hear it, uh, whether they like it or not. Uh, <laughs> uh, the way that G draws bodies is just my favorite thing ever. I can't believe that I get to have my name next to theirs in a book and just like get to drool and revel over all of these thick bodies that are obviously drawn. I mean, G is very technically proficient as as an artist. Like G understands anatomy. And I think that sometimes artists understand anatomy and have such a ingrained idea of what a kind of body a sexy person has that even if they're drawing somebody who's not like the thinnest they still kind of make their bodies like move around or run or bend over or squat they kind of still make those bodies do the thing that like a slender person's body would do but g's bodies don't do that g's bodies do the things that my bodies do my bodies have <laughs> my so many, many bodies <laughs> uh, my i see the creases of my body in g's bodies in a way that i literally never have before in my life and i i truly hope that that is one of the effects of this book that people read it and they're like oh yeah that's what my body does when I do that. Or that's what my partner's body does when we do that or when they do that. So so first of all, I just want to say that. And I it has been such a relief, frankly, and pleasure and delight to to work with somebody who is just naturally like drawing juicier, thicker bodies all around. Um Well, and while we're I, on that, yeah. since we're yeah. since we're there, like that is the other question I had for you, G, is like talk to me about your style because Obviously, they're all the same characters from Volume 1, right? Like, everybody is readily recognizable. But your style is so distinct and juicy. You know, people are juicy. And it's so beautiful as, like, a fat person to see, like, fat people's bodies treated with so much tenderness and love. And, like, yeah, they can still get freaky deaky in, like, all these beautiful ways. And I just want to know, like, you know, how did you develop that style? And, and why does it matter to you to show different bodies, you know, with grace and care? Yeah, well, I'll start with yeah. I am also fat, so that's a that's a good place to begin. Party. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I don't want to be the well. I didn't see people like me growing up, but like straight up, it's like well, there's there's no tenderness really paid to the fat body, or even fat bodies are often depicted devoid of sexuality, which I kind of am like, well, what's going on there, guys? I know what's going on there. Uh, but I am not going to go with that because, you know, fat bodies are hot. Um, that's just kind of how it is. Fat feels great. And I I draw the people in my lives. I draw the people I love. And that kind of shows through in my work, you know. And I guess the cast all maybe gained maybe 15 pounds and for this book, <laughs> but that's fine. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> they deserve it. Yeah. But but yeah, back to the Stacy design. She was designed by Powell. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Powell. And like Stacy is just for the people reading who are people reading, people listening. You listen to a podcast <laughs> um, or reading a transcript, I guess. Stacy is a government issued 
sex bot and she's created as part of a social program that the party creates called Redistro, which is a critique of this real thing happening in discourse around both incels and sex robots about the idea that maybe intimacy should be redistributed by the government in the way that wealth is redistributed because like sexuality has has value so like it's this weird ideology of the right that also somehow simultaneously neglects any of the ideas that have come out of the sex worker rights movement about like how we talk about currency and sexuality Anyway, so like, yes, Stacey is created to be a male fantasy very, very specifically and specifically to be like an incel fantasy. So when G was drawing them, initially I was like, this Stacey bot looks really hot. I'd stick my dick in her. And also you should keep her just as juicy, but just make her waist more slender. Like, just, <laughs> that, that was, I feel like that was our... Uh, did you perhaps look to the history of comics? to come up with that concept of that tiny itty-bitty waist a person couldn't have and still be standing? Totally. Um, <laughs> okay, unless you're Dolly, okay? Fine, fuck it. Dolly yeah, can do it. Well, that. you know, unless, I mean, <laughs> Dolly can do whatever she wants. Exactly, that's my point. <laughs> Another thing that's interesting is that there are there are a ton of fat, sexy bodies in this book, but another thing that I think is extraordinary about G's style is that it's not like a fat, skinny binary. Like sometimes I think you see in an effort to like be more diverse, they will be mm-hmm. like, well, we have all of these skinny people and all of their bodies do the same thing. And then we have this one fat character and their body does something different. And I feel like there are so many different body types in the book and there are new characters that G designed. And then there are some characters who, you know, gone through the process of being designed um, by Michael Dowling and Jen Hickman uh, and Alejandro Gutierrez and Tula Lote in the first book. And G took them and kind of gave them all different body types. So even the people who are, who maybe are fatties also have like, I don't know what you call it, but like the line on your back where even if you don't have like pronounced love handles, there's still like a line on your back that you can see. Can you guys tell I'm not a visual artist? But you know what I'm talking about? And like when skinny people are portrayed, they just like take that off as if you like have zero body fat or like all of the body fat for a specific purpose. But like all of G's characters have all different kinds or you know or maybe there will be like underarm flesh that you can see on somebody who like you can also see their abs you see what i'm saying i'm a fan is what i'm saying <laughs> thanks <laughs> yeah i was going to say that you're right there's so many times where in comic book art you know if you look at somebody from the profile the cheek is gone like cuz they're just like no skinny people don't have cheeks or whatever <laughs> If you look at somebody from like the side, then you just can't see them anymore. What I was going to ask is that with the Stacey's, uh, without trying to give away too much, I don't want to like put any spoilers in this interview, but I was going to say that there comes a time in the book where when we first meet the Stacey's, it's 100% in self-fantasy stuff, right? Like you see these guys who are saying really terrible things about them and that's what they get off on is all being a big group of guys talking horrible things about women or whatever. 
But then you kind of find out that everybody underestimates the Stacys. Like, it's not necessarily just the guys. It's not necessarily just people who are, like, right-wing. It's not necessarily one group of people. But you start to see that maybe everybody didn't totally see what the Stacys were capable of, right? And I was wondering if that was something that you were thinking of. Just, I mean, I guess as a character standpoint, and maybe if that went into the design a little bit too, I would ask G... These are characters to me that you're just like, oh, everybody kind of sold you short a little bit, you know? Okay, I'll quick say, I mean, the Dolly Parton thing, that's real. She ain't no dumb blonde. Her whole thing is being underestimated, you know? Don't underestimate a bimbo. It's kind of the tagline of the whole book. But within her design, yeah, I I wanted her to play up the very hammy, ditzy, always posing because I'm, I'm like, you can contain multitudes. You can be a sex bot and also uh, get up to some stuff that I won't mention. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of always our thing here at Pitches on Comics. I think people want us to come down on this, like, line of, like, oh, there shouldn't be any sexy character. You know, you shouldn't have any sexy or super busty or whatever characters in comics because that's hypersexualizing. And we're like, no, we want you to sexualize, like, safe sex. Do sexualize your characters. Just also let them be people. Yeah, that's, I've said this before, but my gauge of like when I have an issue with gender representation in any media is not, is this character being objectified or are these women objectified? But it's much more, does this woman have subjectivity? And You know, it turns out that you can have big tits and blonde hair and subjectivity at the same time. And that idea of objectification is something that we really played with a lot in this book because a sex robot is not a person. It's an object. It's a machine. And what can we learn about what we project about gender onto a machine that looks like an exaggerated version of femininity. And what can that teach us about how gender is projected or understood by the people onto whom it's projected? And like, what is a body, if not an object, ultimately? And is being objectified sexually really so bad? And I've also gone on the record saying that I want sexy people being sexy in my comics and my literature and my movies and TV and my music. Like, I, you know, and, and that includes bimbos and himbos. And what's the gender neutral? We need right here, right now, we're having a conference Them-bos. on what is this? Thembos? Yep. Enbibos? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Just enbos. Well, enbos. <laughs> I like that. I feel like this needs to be like a Twitter poll. So if you're if you're listening right now, <laughs> hit us up on twitter.com, the website, and tell us what do you think is the what is your choice for gender neutral bimbos? <sighs> We're gonna solve the world's problems tonight. I'll tell you that. Agreed. <laughs> and the main problem is we don't have a word that's gender neutral for bimbo. <laughs> that's where we're gonna start at least. <laughs> <laughs> talking about non-binary people. I don't know if you recall, Tina, but I had a very visceral reaction to 
to Denis in, in volume one, just of like actually just being so excited that a non-binary character was like alive and on the page there. And like, yes, they've been through some tough stuff, but was like pursuing that better future for themselves. And then you read this book and you were like, oh, oh Tina just told me to get fucked. No, I was like, holy shit. How cool is it that Denis gets to be a lead character in this volume? That's actually what it was. I'm really happy to hear you say that. Denis' arc in this book is a really good example of this representation problem where when you have more diversity in your stories, you have to do horrible things to people who are not very represented in other stories because it would, uh, it's my personal feeling that it would be disrespectful to our non-binary characters, our trans characters, our characters of color, our sex worker characters, our queer characters, our working class characters, our characters who are like marginalized or misrepresented in stories and media and pop culture all the time. Like it would be disrespectful to be overly precious with them. You know, like they have to go through the whole spectrum of human experience and I don't think I even realized that there was a story that I wanted to tell about technology and alienation until I started writing into this sort of what started out as like the B plot of this book that takes place in the dirty mind and like revolves greatly around around Denis and their relationships to a lot of other characters and and really their relationship to their sense of self and to their past and their trauma their trauma you guys know that um have you seen the supercut of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis like just being on message over and over and over again and all of the Halloween press tours just saying well you know it's really about trauma you know this is a story about trauma you know when you think about it Halloween I think is really just about trauma and I I feel like that's um <laughs> hey but if there's someone to follow in the footsteps of Jimmy Lee Curtis. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm more John losing Carpenter my mind. For, for sure. <laughs> That's me when anyone asks me, what kind of, what, what, what work do you make? And it's all about trauma. Oh, God. Denny's my favorite character. Oh, yeah. Say more. I, well, I, you know, the self-sabotaging genderqueer. Uh, I, I, I feel a lot of representation and a lot of kinship with them. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and wow, just so sad and just making so many bad decisions. But, you know, we've all been there and I I feel, (laughs) I don't know, I'm just looking at them very disheveled with like a half unbuttoned shirt in this book. And I'm like, yep, I did right by you, kiddo. (laughs) Well, actually, I feel like, uh, okay, pop quiz, I bet that Essie and Sarah can guess what queer character from my favorite 90s genre fiction television show Denise arc is based on or inspired by or that I sort of like looked to as like how far can I push this without everyone hating me okay but give me like three options and then I'll tell you like what tv show are we talking about okay okay 90s as a listener of the show I know that this is a you know we know it. Oh, shit. I know you know it. And it's not obscure. It's a very well-known 90s horror series. And <laughs> what, what, what? This is, I hope this isn't tedious. Um, no, no, I'm loving it personally. <laughs> um, what would be a good hint? Um, Sarah, this is your calling. It's horror. 
actually, there's sort of two characters from this show that, uh, sorry, I'm being up in my head right now. Uh, so so Denis was experimented on when they were incarcerated oh, at the Pleasure Center. Oh, is it Center. Spike and Buffy? It's Spike. Of course it is. But it's another character from Buffy who, when they have a taste of something that they've oh, been Willow. denied their whole life. Yeah. Ah, Willow with her magic. Again, losing my mind. Before I even Willow got there, I was like, I know this has to be about Buffy. Um, <laughs> well, I was like, I have never seen a single TV show from the 90s. I don't know what you're talking about. Like, that was what was, my brain was like, delete all files, go get rid of them. I was literally like, Xander, <laughs> did we like get like a, did we like do, I was like, I was trying so hard to make it be like the good version of Xander that I was actually interested in that I wasn't even thinking about the obvious ones. Um, Who, who's the Xander in Safe Sex? Um, who is the Xander? I mean, honestly, Xander is the incels. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. Xander's, like, such an incel. But, yeah. by the way, the brilliant Tuolote, who has done every safe sex cover, ex- except for the one that Alejandra did for her pop-in issue, uh, and who did the wraparound cover for this book, I did not say anything about Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Tula. And she, <laughs> if you look on the back... At the crowd of incels, there is a character in the foreground that looks so much like Xander Harris. Beautiful. <laughs> fuck you, Joss Whedon. Fuck you. Can we all just say, fuck you, Joss Whedon? Yeah. Fuck you, Joss Whedon. Fuck you, Joss Whedon. Sarah? <laughs> oh, I was going to say that everybody has done your stories better. So I wasn't going to say fuck you, but I was going to be like a little bit meaner, you know? Like, Ooh, and be like, like everybody has been a little bit better than you. Joss, you are basic. Anyway. But (laughs) all of that being said, Buffy was definitely a quarantine comfort rewatch for me. And I think I've spoken in tale and song on the internet and in the flesh about my feelings about Spike and and definitely the like chip in the head thing was Mm. was all Spike. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh my God, it's all making sense (laughs) I know. (laughs) But... um, (laughs) Yeah, it's like, I am one of those people that have done just done uh, all these stories better. But I will say that the, <laughs> exactly. that the that Willow's arc in Buffy, and I know that there are some people who like really don't love this sort of. I think it's like seasons like five and six that where things get really dark, and those are like obviously my my favorite. End of five is when Buffy dies. End of six is when Willow goes dark. Right, right. So those are also the spiked sex seasons. <laughs> um, In between about- is the sex the spike. Between those two major events, there's spike. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, those, that's that's my favorite Buffy. I mean, I am about the same age that those characters were, not the actors, but uh, like I went to college the same, the year that they went to college. Um, and so... See, we did it with X-Files last time and now we're doing it with Buffy. <laughs> As that show got darker uh, like and more mature, like I was already pretty dark, but I was like maybe getting a little bit more mature. And like the arc of Willow, who, you know, had always been like the dependable, like sort of submissive, mousy, sort of uh, like desexualized for a long time character, the like second fiddle discovering this deep power that she not only had access to, but could use to 
self-actualize in a way that nobody had ever given her the space for before, that still resonates with me as like a very compelling storyline. I think it's sort of more compelling when you think about it that way than if you think about it as like, it's a metaphor for her being a junkie or it's a metaphor for her being gay or whatever. Like magic as giving you access to like discovering your power. And so for Denis, who has since adolescence never been able to experience any kind of sensation because of being put through reformation, which is basically conversion therapy, that they get access through trying to save their comrades, that they get access to this cyberspace, which we call wet space, and it provides them with a physical sensation or like a replication of a physical sensation because it's all in their mind that they have never had. And that everybody else is like, well, let's try to like use this and like weaponize this to like fight the power. And Denis is like, if I don't keep this a secret from everyone, they're not going to let me have it. So from the first time that they experience wet space, they start lying in a way where they're like, I need this and nobody is going to appreciate the fact that this thing that they take for granted that they're fighting for, I'm fighting for it on principle, but I've never actually gotten to experience like what it is. And it's definitely the kind of thing where I didn't even realize until we were finished making it. I was like, oh man, I was working out some stuff there about like <laughs> quarantine and like not being able to be embodied in my relationships to people. And also what it means to not just want to fight for sexuality, but to like experience your own sexuality. And if you had access to that, like, would you sacrifice everything good in your life just to keep having that? And in a way, it's kind of like, I wanted to complicate the idea that like, the sexy characters are all good and doing sex properly. Um, and like, like all queer people and all kinky people are fighting against the people who want us to do bad things when it comes to sex and just want to like repress ourselves. But if you just let us be in charge, we would never make any mistakes. Um, and I just, I know that not to be true. And I wanted the world of safe sex to not just get reduced to sex workers or superheroes, which is like both true, but also more I wanted this to be the kind of science fiction where we could where we could complicate that. Well, it 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 again rejects a binary, right? Like rejecting the that's binary right. of you can be good or you can be bad. And I think that's the bravery in these pages is to reach for a complicated narrative for a non-binary character to let Denis be selfish, which like God damn, who else has a right to be at that point in their lives if not Denis, right? Like Denis has a right exactly. For what they experience and they have a right to be mad at the people around them, even if they're not mad at them for the right reasons, you know, or not, even if it's not their fault, they have a right to be mad and messy. And, you know, G, you were talking about drawing Denis like with disheveled hair and fucked up clothes, just like looking like a mess, still looking like a snack, but also looking like a mess. And I, I guess that's part of why I loved this volume so much as I was like, uh, hello, that's much more how I feel about my gender identity than anything I see out there. You know, Janet from The Good Place, if you're the kind of non-binary person that identifies with someone who is very cute and nice all the time, wow, I am so happy for you. I am a fucking rage machine. 
I am pissed off literally constantly. And I cannot say I wouldn't do exactly what Denis did in that scenario. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're just so desperate. And I it it was an element to the story that felt, you know, there's so much like AI and robots, but it's like it's a very human feeling to like Avery's trying to escape. Denise trying to feel anything. And so there's just a lot of humanity in in the crazy robot sex book, you know? So uh, read it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, we probably should talk about Avery at least a little bit. You know, we haven't really gotten into her story, but I really love the dynamic. Again, trying not to have any spoilers, but we'll keep them light if they do happen. You know, I really thought it was cool to see Avery interacting with with the Stacys and with Stacy, where like, you know, she's upset. You might expect her, or I guess like a typical narrative around, you know, sex bots is like, oh, there's, uh, you know, resistance to the introduction of them or people look down on them. Like, I think, Sarah, you said this. Everyone underestimates Stacy. You know, it's not just the incels. But there's this moment, and I thought this at the moment where I was like, except Avery, right? And maybe it's because Avery doesn't underestimate the transformational power of fucking. Like, that's one of the reasons she connects with Stacy, right? Is she's not freaked out about fucking. She sees a liberatory power in that. And I'm curious, was that something that was, you know, Tina, did you have that in your notes? You're like, and here we will have a revelation while fucking. Or, you know, how did you discover that moment? I think, (laughs) I love this. I think that you're right that Avery's superpower is that she understands the value of fucking. And I've always said that Avery is not like my proxy in this story, but in a way, I think that she does become a little bit of a proxy for, as a writer, she's like my agent for cutting through the ideological bullshit of whatever we're grappling with in this book and in the first book it's like homonormativity and second wave feminism and like swerfs and turfs basically and in this book it's incels and sex robots and all of these things as a nonfiction writer and reader are something that I read a lot about and and am involved in a lot of discourse about and and, and write about as well and like I just, I think that it's so interesting that a lot of issues that people have with sex robots remind me of the issues that people have with sex workers, which kind of makes sense when you think about the fact that machines are built to work. And so I like the idea that Avery would be presented with a sex robot and instead of going to the place that like a lot of feminists go to of being afraid that sex robots will perpetuate the objectification of women, the sexual objectification of women, or will like create this sort of normalization of sexual slavery and can kind of just like take a step back and be like, well, I'm built to fuck and you're built to fuck. So let's talk. And and the other thing that's special about Avery is that she's the kind of character who is always, she's a director, right? She's a porn director. So she's always thinking about 
the big picture of like executing the project. She's a project manager. Uh, she's the mommy. Like we were just talking about before we started recording, all project managers are mommies and that's why their labor is underestimated. But anyway, uh, like G already said this, like Avery is an imprisoned human who needs to escape. And so that's her project <laughs> that she's trying to manage right now. And, you know, in the first book, her project was infiltrating the pleasure center in order to rescue George and Jones. And in this book, she's trapped in the pleasure center and needs to figure out a way to get out. And so in a way she sees Stacy as a means to an end in a way she sees other people as a means to an end. I mean, ultimately when you're the character that like needs to come up with a plan, you kind of have to be like, you, you have to delegate, right? You have to see all the people around you and all of their specialties as something that you can put together in order to achieve a common goal. And in this case, that's getting the fuck out of the pleasure center and out from the rule of the party and away from the tyranny of Dr. Powell and Inspector Wilder. And And I think that there are some ways in which Avery still does underestimate Stacy. I, I think that honestly everybody in this book underestimates a bimbo. And for all of the reasons that we were talking about earlier with like when G was talking about like how we characterize Stacy, and as a queer person who is definitely like butch of center and only is really femme when someone's looking like my like femme identity is I like identify as glam because it's like I'm only femme for attention and the femmes, the queer femmes that I know have really taught me that like people who really identify as femme people of any gender are like when when no one's watching um it's a zen question really and so like i think that i wanted to portray even my own short-sightedness that i have had of just assuming that if someone looks and acts the way that stacy looks and acts that there is like a vacuousness or like a vapidness there and if Stacy has been programmed to be that way, but is also an artificial intelligence, which means she's a machine learning algorithm, one thing that she would be learning is how to use that expectation that people have of her in order to achieve her goals and what her goals are, we learn throughout the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe almost every time we have you on, Tina, we'll generally be like, so what was the cosmic <laughs> background of every decision you made in this book? Because we <laughs> love having these conversations with you. But I wanted to ask about something that's just kind of fun, which is the playlist in the book. So A, I was wondering, gee, did you have anything to do with the playlist? Was that like something that was you were listening as you came along? Or like, is it something that was a surprise when the book came out? And then, of course, how do you choose the songs? Because these playlists are popping. They're amazing. I really love a lot of the songs that were on them. And then was just like, this is like the classics. Like these are, this is like all of the right songs to put on a playlist that is about exactly this. It just fit the aesthetic really well. So I'm guessing it was something you were listening to at the time, but how did they all come together? I didn't have a lot to do with the playlists. Well, because I knew about them beforehand with the first book. And and so I kind of heard bits of what was going on with them while working on the book. And I think I I got the link towards the end to them and got to listen through, which was really fun. 
<laughs> I, I think the reason they fit so well is just Tina integrates her writing and, and the music really well. While I was drawing, I had a sex bot playlist, I think, that I made. It's just like seven songs on it. Someday I'll... <laughs> Tina, I should send that to you. I don't think I ever sent that to you. Uh, yes, I need your sex bot playlist, please. <laughs> yeah, um, but I didn't, I, I, I didn't have a ton to do with that, but I'd love to hear what started that. I mean, I love making playlists and have been doing it since I was a little kid. And honestly, I find them incredibly self-indulgent. Like the process of making them is very self-indulgent, almost masturbatory, you might say. But it also makes sense as someone who shows off my actual masturbation for a living. It makes sense that I would show off my sort of virtual masturbation or like different forms of masturbation for a living. It's like all all of my art is ultimately me being like, well, I just want to do this and I need money to live. So if I do it in a way that's entertaining to you, can I just do this and can I live? <laughs> and so, I mean, I guess like being being able to publish playlists and the fact that the thing that is published is just a list of the songs so that kind of like skirts any copyright issues because we're not selling like you can listen to the playlists on Spotify. Tina Horn is the profile that you can listen to them on both for this book and the previous book. But we're not selling the playlists. Right. And I, I learned early on that I couldn't incorporate lyrics into a comic without dealing with copyright issues like a, a, an editor that I worked with at D.C., I literally was like, well, in this Sandman comic, there's these Tori Amos lyrics and these Iggy Pop lyrics. So can I put those in? And they were like, actually, the fact that they put those in has been just like a huge nightmare line item ever since. That's an inside DC story for you, apparently. Like they like snuck in um, some lyrics without permission and have been paying for it ever since. But anyway, so we couldn't do that. I mean, I'm a very music is everywhere all the time for me and I think that the only thing that I don't like about writing is that there's no music (laughs) you know or like the only thing about this comic and the idea that we can like that G and Kelly and Lauren and Steve and Tula and like everybody at Image like everybody that puts labor into this work that we can put that this out into the world but that the one thing that it doesn't have is any music it's like the playlists kind of um like suggest that dimension so sometimes it's like me imagining these scenes cinematically like if at the beginning of chapter three when Avery and Stacy are in this dominatrix scene in wet space like what are the songs that I would put on the soundtrack if I was like making this into a movie? And then sometimes it's just like a joke or a pun. And sometimes it's something that may have like directly inspired a character or a mood, or sometimes it's something that I was listening to while I was writing it. And I'm glad that people enjoy them. And again, for me, it's just really self-indulgent to be like, I know I make great playlists and the fact that I get to secretly publish them under the pretense of making a comic book is um, is really fun. And I guess also like looking back on it for the same reason that I like looking back on the playlists that I have made for people at different times in our lives or to commemorate certain occasions. It brings me back into that space 
when I see like, oh, I heard this cover of Staying Alive by a band called Tropical Fuck Storm. And I instantly was like, well, that would be the best song to end this comic with. And then I remember the moment when I first heard that song or when I was listening to it a lot. So it's really for me. And I hope that people get to enjoy it just like jerking off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so safe sex, obviously amazing. You came back to this world, everything amazing two times around. What do you have coming up? And what do both of you have coming up? Like, is this something that you're mostly just working on the promotion right now? Tina, I know that you're very busy. And then I'm just wondering what you all both have on the horizon. All right. Gee, uh, uh, gee you should talk about what you're working on. <laughs> okay. Um, well, right now, honestly, I, I'm working on some writing stuff behind the scenes for a, a graphic novel that will slowly but surely be made with... Mostly, uh, well, no, I'm I, I'm I'm being paid to do it, but trying to also self finance on the side. Yeah, I, I I can't say anything about some stuff yet, uh, but there is some horny comics coming your way. <laughs> yeah, I am. For those who don't know, Kickstarter fulfillment is a beast, and this is the first time I've run a Kickstarter, so I'm also like learning a lot of new software and just like making mistakes and being transparent about those mistakes and dealing with that and also publicizing the book. The book just came out. So I'm mostly working on that right now. And I can't think that much further into the future than the tip of my nose. So I honestly, I'm looking forward to a time that I'm not just tearing my hair out about everything that needs to happen (laughs) with project managing this book so I can really just enjoy the fact that we made a great work of science fiction in the middle of the hardest year the world has known in a long time. And, um, but I will say... But tell us about your sexy classes. Oh, sure. Well, one thing that I do to make ends meet that is very, is work that I love to do is teaching what I call BDSM education for grownups and you know, I've been doing it for a really long time in a lot of different venues and have, you know, been doing it in person at like community centers and like feminist sex toy stores and, you know, places like the kink.com armory, uh, basically any, any place that does sexuality workshops. I've been teaching classes for a long time and sometimes I get flown out to do them and sometimes I do them at universities. And yeah, one thing that has been cool about 2021 is that a lot of people who used to do those events in their spaces, in their physical spaces, have figured out how to do them using online video platforms and online, you know, sort of ticket aggregating platforms. And um, so I've been, I've been teaching more classes online. I, you know, I specialize in teaching dirty talk. I definitely have some specific like querying dirty talk and you know, I do a role play class and I do like kind of getting into specific categories of role play. This year I developed a consensual non-consent class for the first time. That was really fun. I also teach like a lot of butt sex stuff. Like I said, everything just comes back to butts. And um, yeah, so if you're interested in taking one of my classes, you can go to my website, which is tinahorn.net and sign up for my newsletter where I 
I'm always updating my upcoming classes. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Tina Horns Ass, where I'm, I'm always updating those as well. And if there's a kind of class that you want to see, let me know. And, uh, you know, and I do one-on-one coaching as well. And I do consulting for other people's creative work. And I've done some like onset intimacy consulting, which is really cool work. So yeah, I'm, I'm doing that. Is there a class that you guys want to see? Oh my. Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I'm like, hmm. I don't know if I want to share that with our listeners, but I'll keep it in mind. Sure, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Honestly, maybe in 2022, you know? Yeah, I mean, I did I did a... So, something that I, I got to do this year that I was really excited about was I've been sort of like pressing up against this for a really long time. And then I just finally went for it and pitched a class about monster sex. And that was the most, like, in a sense, it's sort of like role play fantasy and fetish based, but that was sort of the most like pop culture and literary based workshop that I've done. So it was both like how to like explore your darker fantasies, but also let's just talk about the horniest ghosts. And um, that was really fun. And I, I the really horniest do, ghosts. <laughs> and I really want to do a class or I want to do some kind of project. Don't steal this. Any Anyone listening to this, I, I really want to do something. And I, I pitched it around and nobody has bit. And I feel like one day somebody is going to be into it. I feel like something about supernatural sex ethics would be really interesting. So like, I feel like y'all have talked about this on this show. Like if somebody body swaps and then they have sex with someone and that person thinks that they're that person, like what is the role of consent in that? And like, what about like self cessed If you think about like, like Loki or like, like, can you fall in love with a version of yourself from a, another dimension? And I kind of want to get into exploring all those kinds of things. Like I just watched the movie Face Off, right? So like I could do an entire episode on like <laughs> the sexual ethics of like, what does it mean for Joan Allen to like sleep with John Travolta with the face of Nicolas Cage? Like, don't, don't you want, don't you guys want to talk about that? <laughs> Spoilers for Face Off. <laughs> Sorry. I want nothing more. <laughs> Spoilers for Face Off. Um, <laughs> yeah, whenever you started talking about this sexual ethics for Supernatural, like my head like snapped to the side <laughs> where I was like, oh, yeah, I want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, like, what does it mean that like Marty McFly's mom like had a crush on him? You know, like this is okay. I, this is what I want to <laughs> I talk do about. need to know because. <laughs> I remember, like, I feel like Leah Thompson in that movie is, like, my root somehow. And then I'm also like, whoa, what does it mean to have Leah Thompson in that movie specifically be your root? (laughs) Anyway. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Agreed. Same. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, can we do a whole class about that? Gosh, I want to draw that book. I want to read that book. And <laughs> next time, you ha- you should do another monster fucking class because I, I had a conflict so I couldn't go and I was so upset. I do feel like most of our working relationship has just been a monster fucking class. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to go to hang out, okay? I'll, I'll draw you a poster or something. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. That's- yeah, 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 yeah. Monster, monster fucking kind of... I'm, I'm going to stop there right there. Um, Honestly, now stuff. I'm just realizing right here on Bitches on Comics that maybe we should just pitch this as a book and try to get some money that way. We need money. Yeah. We need money, guys. Mm-hmm. <sighs> you might be onto something here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Well, we won't forget the little people. Well, please don't. <laughs> please don't. And this um, is, you know, our, <laughs> this is how we make our millions. Brilliant. You know, Tina, I, I heard you share your social handles. And gee, I was curious if, if you would like to share your handle uh, for any social media. Yeah, it's a real simple one. It's just at G. Romero Johnson on Twitter and Instagram. Just my name. That's it. Nice. I think we're all, well, except Tina added ass to mm. hers. But all of us have our names in ours, at least. So we're findable. If you did not have a pencil out, dear listener, do not fret. These, uh, these will be in the show notes. I will be putting everyone's uh, handles in the show notes. I feel like this is one of those conversations where I'm like, well, I'll see you all next week. Let's do this again soon because I feel like we <laughs> talked about a ton of things, but not all of the things that I want to talk to the two of you about. So anytime. Yeah, exactly. Really exactly. Fun. Oh, thank you for being a guest, both of you. This has been, <laughs> when I finished reading volume two, I like threw my tablet across the room. I was like, excuse me, you're going to, you're going to end on that. Are you uh, yes. fucking kidding me? And then I was like, can I read it again? And then I was like, am I in love with Stacy? These were all the thoughts going through my mind, and they went very rapid fire. So uh, bye. I'm going to go read volume two again. I'm genuinely in love with it. Listeners, if you have enjoyed any of the books you have picked up from us, and certainly if you have enjoyed Safe Sex Volume 1, don't miss Volume 2, Terms of Service. It is, whew, you know, wow. A book to be read, my friends. And whether you pick it up at your local comic book store or local bookstore or at the library, you have it here from the creator herself. That's all right, y'all. Just read it. Tell somebody. Just read it. Tell a friend. Yeah, yeah. post about it on the places you influence people. Mm-hmm. The influencing <laughs> sites, I believe they're called. Uh, yeah, thank you both so much, G, Tina. Oh my gosh, you're both damn delights. I will be brainstorming topics to bring you back for. And obviously, when you sell this monster fucker book, we will be right there uh, having your backs <laughs> and buying all of the uh, accoutrement. I assume there will be pins, sashes, oh, yeah. maybe. Oh, yeah. Hats. Graphic dildos, you know, who knows? We'll see. Oh my God. That's Themed a dildos. good idea. That's, that's, that's <laughs> Take yeah, it and run. That's the ticket. Yeah, we, we need that. Well, Sarah, you are the best as always. I really appreciate you. Kate, thanks for all your work on this episode. Listeners, you know who we are. We're the bitches. It's December 29th and we miss you already. And we'll see you in 2022, a whole year away. JK, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, y'all. Thanks for having us. Thank Yay. you. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @bitchesoncomics and on Instagram at, at @bitchesoncomics. Our website is, brace yourself, bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes. And we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. <laughs> 
Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.